Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk, and as usual, this is a Tuesday episode, so our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren, is here with me. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning, Bradley. It's uh, been quite the weekend here in New York, the crazy, like, winter storm, the winter bomb, the snow bomb. What do they call it? The snow bomb? Snow apocalypse, snow bomb, <laughs> something like that. But, it, you know, it was like, I think they said in Central Park it was like eight inches, which is a lot, but it's not 20. Yeah, right. I, I, was, I was in London flying back. My flight landed exactly when it started snowing Friday morning, oh. and I was flying back because Harper's 50th birthday was this weekend. I was like, I cannot miss this no matter what. Like yeah, I went yeah. to London for one dinner meeting, and that was it. So, um, And uh, thank God we landed because I felt like uh, if, if the flight had even been a few hours later, it might not have happened. Now, that was a super quick trip to London, but you said you were actually looking forward to it, just having some time I yourself. was, but, like, you know, in retrospect— because you missed two nights of sleep effectively, and you're on. I was on the ground for like 22 hours like that. Um, it was too too quick of a trip. Okay, okay. Uh, but but successful. Um, and then we had a you know with the snowstorm. Uh, th- how was it for you? Did you go skiing or anything like that? No, no. I, I it was too cold to ski. Do you think people? I mean, I know people did go skiing. I think but people did because I, I know someone who did. Right. But I wouldn't. I don't like skiing when it's that cold. I it's don't like skiing. It. Period. I mean, I like skiing fine. I just find it so overrated. It's like no, it's I enjoy fun. it. It's fun. But, but it's a nice, like, vacation thing to do. But I was, I was saying to Hugo before we started recording, this is the only time of the year that I don't like being a dog owner because, you know, having to – I really don't like being cold. So having to put on, <laughs> like, long underwear and pants and three layers and my coat and scarf and hat and gloves and all of that – just to take the dog outside. And your kids, three, weren't, your kids weren't volunteering? For, no, <laughs> no. So like th- three times a day, you know, sat Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that was kind of miserable. Okay, we have a lot of things to talk about yeah. today. I, now, people who listen to this podcast probably know this, but one of, the, one, of, one of Bradley's personality quirks is when he starts getting busy, what happens is he gets busier. So, like, ideas come to him. So one of the things we're going to talk about today, which is completely out of left field for me anyway, which is your idea that the, the state capital, um, the New York state capital, yeah. should be moved from Albany to New York City. So this came in the midst of, like, a crazy busy week <laughs> where you were working on this huge document yep. on the metaverse. You yep. had, obviously, a lot of other business things happening that, you know, we're not going to talk about. But 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 all this thing happening. And then you just – this idea came to you how? Why? You know, Shelly Silver died. Shelly Silver, right. you don't know, was the longtime, longest-serving speaker of the New York State Assembly, um, died in prison for corruption. And Silver, to me, was the epitome of – Someone who just gamed the system out for his entire life and abused it in every possible way to benefit himself financially. Tell non people like what did what did Shelley Silver? So the, the, what was his real the biggest major thing? What he did was, he, so he um, was all. F- the first problem is that New York lawmakers it's considered a part time job, so they're allowed to have other income. And Shelley was a partner at a law firm, and the only work that he did was the law firm would tell him our clients want this or that, and then he would make that happen for them uh, politically. And then he would be paid— I just did this over and over and over again. For years and years and years. Right. And made millions and millions and millions of dollars doing it. And, and everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. And then finally there was one example where you know, he, the prosecutors could show that he officially crossed the line. Right. They prosecuted him. Um, he appealed. He lost the appeal. He was— probably in the late 70s, something like that, um, and he died uh, in prison last week. And the reason, I wrote a piece for the Daily News on Sunday, and the reason I wrote it was to make the case to say, look, Shelley Silver's death isn't the end of an era or the end of corruption. It is a symbol of the underlying problem, which is when you have state capitals in tiny little cities where they're the only game in town, Albany, Springfield, Harrisburg, 
Lansing. You just go around the list. Right. Um, You're good on the state capitals, for, aren't you? You I always have. were. I'm pretty good, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the potential for corruption and just abuse of power is so much more significant. So, so it turns out Harvard and the Singapore School of Management did a study, and they looked at this very question, which is correlation between population density and corruption in state capitals. Right. And what they found is cities like Denver, Austin, Atlanta, Boston, that are also the state capitals, uh-huh. much less corruption um, than in these cities where the state government's only game in town. And, and having spent four years in Springfield, Illinois, you know, when I was deputy governor, um, it makes total sense to me, which is when you're the only thing, you are a huge deal. Right. So Andrew Cuomo got away with harassing and groping women for years and years and years because in Albany, he was the equivalent of like Vladimir Putin, right? He was the king. He was the dictator. He was everything. Nobody would cross right. him, right? right? Shelly Silver, same thing. Um, I think five of the last six Senate majority leaders in New York have gone to prison for corruption. Right. Um, you know, think about the governors. Pataki was okay, but then Spitzer resigned in disgrace. Patterson had to, you couldn't run for election because he was so battered by corruption scandals. Cuomo had to resign in disgrace. Um, so, Right, Every these are part governors, of, right? Yeah, these governors, are, right. states, you know, Senate presidents, uh, speakers, let alone just normal corrupt state senators and assembly <laughs> members. So, you know, uh, Cuomo's top guy, Joe Prococo, I think he just got out of jail, but was in jail for, for theft for a long time. So point being, when you're the only game in town, you have too much power. So if you take Lord Acton's, you know, quote of, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely, um, that's going to be even worse in a place like Albany. And so my argument was, look, if we want all, if we want state government to be less corrupt, we want it to be more about the needs of the people and not about the needs of uh, special interests or people paying bribes or whatever else it is, put it in the sunshine. And you know what the sunshine here would be? New York City. If you move the state capital from Albany to New York City. World capital of sunshine, New York City. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's, that's like that great line about Florida, a sunny place for shady people. Right. Um, but, but it's a you, shady place for not sunny people. No, yeah. Forget it. Um, but, if, but if you put it in New York City, here's what would happen. The governor, not that big a deal anymore. The Senate president, no one even know who it is. The speaker, not that big a deal. And as a result, by being treated less like royalty and by everyone deferring to them less and by less by not being the only game in town, it changes the culture. And so the culture for uh, a state politician in Denver or Phoenix or Austin is different because, you know what, they're not that big a deal. Um, Whereas in a place like Harrisburg or Lansing or Springfield, they're everything. And so my argument in the piece was – if you don't want this to continue, you got to move the capital out of Albany. Now, I know that's not going to actually happen, and I know it would devastate the city of Albany. And I said in the piece, I have no solutions whatsoever to how to, how to fix that. But um, we are just signing up for decades and decades of more corruption. Okay, let's let's uh, let's. Why why doesn't New York City just secede? Why isn't that a better idea? Like like oh, be- I, I would argue that New York City should be a city state like Singapore. Right. I, I would secede from both the state and the nation. The state and the nation. Yeah, if it were up to me. Why would you want to secede from the United States? Because we send vastly more money to the federal government than we get back. It's a huge disparity. New York City pays a disproportionate amount of taxes both for Albany for state government and in Washington for federal government. So why wouldn't we just keep the wealth for ourselves? Okay, one more um, state capital question. Yeah. Not to do with Albany. What is the state capital of, of Alaska? Didn't it change a lot when we were kids? Because wasn't it Juno? like Juno, Anchorage, and wasn't Willow in the mix at some I don't point? Know, but Willow is like a bad movie from the eighties. I don't really remember that much about <laughs> it. Um, I have never been. To, I've been to, I think forty six or forty seven states at this point, um, and probably twenty plus state capitals, but never to Alaska. 
I had a friend who, for whatever reason, it was her, her obsession to touch the state capitol of every, and I think like she physically, yeah, Did she phys- do it. I, I, you know, I have I've been out of touch with her. She hadn't she's a like weird, she's probably an interesting person. I bet she has. Kind of cool. She, and I think this this friend of mine, I think she she moved to Milwaukee of all places. Yeah, she's anyway. my kind of weirdo. Yeah, <laughs> my kind of. Okay. Um, the other th- one of the other topics we want to talk about today is uh, the Manhattan District Attorney, yeah. uh, Alvin Bragg, who has been the subject of much scrutiny, especially. Uh, so say, say a little bit about Alvin Bragg. Here's what's happening, yeah. and the point I really wanted to make. So Alvin Bragg is uh, the newly elected District Attorney of Manhattan. He has been in office now. An for alumni of the same high school as me. Just there by, you go. Just by the, the way. Alumni. And, and by Trinity, the way, I know Alvin. Trinity School in the Upper N- Nice man. Very nice. Okay. But um, been in office for about a month, and it has been an incredibly rocky month for him because. He issued a memo like on his first day of office basically saying we are no longer prosecuting, you know, fair jumping and graffiti and public urination and uh, even theft if it's not in right, a without threat crime. of Without threat right. of violence, right? And as a result, you combine that with the spate of gun violence in New York City, including two police officers who were murdered uh, to a week ago, combined with Albany's bail laws that just let everyone who, it's just a revolving door now. You get arrested, you get in front of a judge, and you're back out in the street You know, three hours later. All of that has led to this perfect storm where the city feels very violent, and, and Bragg has become the face of the problem of the violence of the crime and you know every well, the day. permissiveness i mean he's obviously yeah. not causing the violence no right? but the right. idea is that it's it's his well what they would say it's it, right I it's see. not only that his personality is preventing crime from being prosecuted they would say that he is encouraging people to go commit crime because right. he's saying i'm not going to prosecute you do right. whatever you want right and so as a result he's being tracked however the point of this little segment here is not to further pile on to alvin um but to say this which is there's now a lot of talk about governor hochul has the legal authority to remove a district attorney for cause. Right. Right. And I don't know if that's – maybe it's probably happened a couple times in history when, like, a district attorney gets arrested for something or whatever it is. But basically that doesn't really happen. But there's been a lot of talk, should she remove him because, you know, he's that that controversial at the moment. And what I wanted to say is, like, no. Like – I didn't support him in the in the race. I supported Tali Weinstein. And the reason why I didn't support Alvin is I heard what he was saying. And what he said was – I don't believe that people are, are criminals for any reason. That it's not their own fault if they are. And I don't think they should be prosecuted. And I don't think law enforcement is really something that we should be worried about. Right. He ran very explicitly that he was going to be incredibly weak and soft on crime. The New York Times endorsed him on the platform of, I don't believe in enforcing the laws. Right? right. He won. Right. There's no bait and switch here. Well, There's no okay, cause well, to well, remove him. Let, let me ask you a question. If you're the governor, right, and yeah. you legitimately think that his policies present a clear and present danger to the well-being of people in Manhattan. Uh, I mean, shouldn't you remove him? I mean, it, like, like, like. Okay, so let's. Yeah, so yes, I guess so. But I think you would have to. The substance of this politics, substantively, to remove someone who is democratically elected, right? Who won, um, and to remove them simply because you don't agree with their policies, I right. think is very, very dangerous. Right? right. Number one, but I'm not even sure that really constitutes for a cause. Number two, politically. Um, while she probably will take a little bit of a hit from the from the more center right over not removing him, I think a lot of people, both African Americans, will say we fought first ever African American attorney in Manhattan, right. and now you're, you're, the white governor is removing him after a month because right. of like his policies. Right. Um, I think a lot of white liberals would feel the same way. But here's the other point: for everyone who's complaining, there are 877,000 registered Democrats in Manhattan. About 277, I, I looked this up the other day, I might have the numbers slightly off, um, voted in the primary. Right. So 70% of people 
did not show up and vote. Right. Look, no one believes more than me that we should make it easier to vote, right? I am literally putting all of my time and money into making mobile voting happen. However, for as long as the system is the way it is, either vote or don't fucking complain. Right. But this notion of all these people who sit on their couch and now they're whining about it, too fucking bad. Well, so I will say the governor, Hochul, said she is, quote, not prepared to undo the will of the people. So she, she's not about to do this. No, um, and it, it would but, be politically stupid. But here's the other thing. Is it politically stupid for her to be in the background being like, hey, FYI, you know, I'm in charge of this person's job I mean, they, and therefore have some power here should things go? Isn't, yeah. it, isn't that a good thing to get I out guess there so. in this By the way, she, it, it's out there whether she wanted it to be or not because the press – Knows that. Right. Um, she met with him like a week ago or something Friday, like that. Yeah, I think yeah, so, and, yeah. you know. Um, I, but at the end of the day, like, unless he does something that is so horrific, it seems to me he was very explicit about what he believed in. He ran on that platform. He won. He was democratically elected. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. And while I don't support, I didn't support him, and I don't agree with a lot of his views right now, like, the notion now that all of a sudden, like, whoa, we didn't know, like, that's bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you have a pretty volatile situation. I mean, the 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 reaction to the to the murder of the two police officers last week and the incredible outpouring of emotion yeah. suggests that like, should something uh, a subsequent thing happen, even if it's not something connected, will happen. Right. This is New York City. Right. There <laughs> right. will be crime. There. Will no, be no. Crimes. I don't mean I don't mean just like crime. I mean, there's crime all the time. But I mean, another shooting of a police officer or something. You know. By the way, police officers have an incredibly hard job. Um, during the Yang campaign, I was lambasted constantly because my consulting firm, Tough Strategies, represented the PBA, the Police Development right. Association, for a couple of years. We specifically worked on a project to negotiate a better deal for the lowest paid cops with the city of New York right. so that people who are risking their lives, who get, like Jason Rivera, who was murdered and were making you know 30-something thousand dollars a year to give them a little more money to make the job a little easier and a little better – uh, and I'm very proud that we accomplished that for them. And I don't give a shit what the left thinks about, like, that we should defund all the police or empty out all the jails or anything else. So being a cop is a very, very hard job. But we also have a democratic society. And if you run for office and you're pissed about what you're going to do and you win, that's it. What's the sort of political advice you might have for, for Bragg in this I've, I've been texting him a little bit, actually. Uh -huh. um, the first thing I said to him was, if you believe in what you're doing, keep doing it. Right. I don't believe in what you're doing. But if you believe in it and you think it's right, it is far better to be a failed politician but, but a person of principle than to be sort of a you know, successful politician who believes in nothing. Right. And look, is his messaging bad? Yeah, it's awful. Um, do you think his messaging has been bad? Terrible. And do I think he is wildly politically unsophisticated despite having won the election? Yes. And does his team seem incredibly weak politically? Yes. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that he's doing wrong. Right. Um, but – there's a distinction between him being bad at politics or even bad at his job um, and removing him because now all of a sudden you don't like what he's saying. Right. Um, moving from uh, – uh, I'm going to have to cut this part out, this terrible transition I'm making. Um, but no, this let, is let the public see how <laughs> hard this is for you. <laughs> how challenging it is yeah. to be the co-host of the podcast. Yeah. Um, 
it's just hard these transitions to completely different subjects. You know, you, we, we're, we're getting all wound up on on like this right, incredibly. Sure. It's, it's when, when I do the interview for Thursdays, it's easier because it's one guest on one topic, and yeah. the questions are generally kind right, of flow. consistent from thing to yeah, thing. Yeah. Whereas here, yeah. Hugo and I over the weekend text back and forth and say, "What do we want to talk about?" We make a list, and sometimes the topics kind of flow into each other. But today they're all very different. Um, so you wanted to talk about the Olympics? Um, yes. You, Bradley is very anti-Olympics. He's anti-Albany. He's um, he's pro brag. I'm not least. pro brag. I'm, well, I'm anti removing brag. Anti removing brag. Right. I was gonna I was gonna try to qualify that slightly. But anyway, you're you're fully anti Olympics. Well, here's the thing. So I actually love the Olympics. In fact, one dream job that I always winter and summer equally. Summer much more. Yeah. But but and I've been to the Olympics. I loved it. Uh, we Which ones so, did you go to? I went to London in 2012, okay. and we had. Tickets to go to Tokyo in 2020, obviously that didn't end up happening. Right. So well, I the like, Olympics happened, but you weren't able to go. They went in 21. Yeah. Right. I love sports. I love events. I like all of this stuff. However, seems to me that you have to take a hard look at this thing and say, okay, what's the reality of it? Number one, um, and the reason we're talking about this is that the Winter Olympics start this Friday in Beijing, and uh, the U.S. and others are not sending over a lot of uh, you know non-athletes because they want to protest Chinese treatment on, on human rights. But also there's like some pretty crazy restrictions in a lot of places, right? I mean, freedom of movement and stuff yeah, is pretty and, restricted. Yeah, and well, China is not a democratic country and they're very, and, and all, I, yeah, I many groups like Amnesty International basically said to the athletes, don't use your phone, don't just keep your head down, just do your sport and get out, right? Um, but it seems to me, you have a situation now where Beijing is hosting these Winter Olympics because they couldn't find anyone else to do it. Because hosting the Winter Olympics stinks. It doesn't attract that much attention. It doesn't make any money. I went to Lake Placid in 1980. That was pretty good. That was cool because of hockey. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Who got the game? Uh, not that game, no. <laughs> not Actually, we did not see the U.S. team play, that's sad to say. Those were like the – I mean, the, the the arena there is tiny. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, look, that's the, greatest, that's the greatest single Winter Olympic event of all time. Right? Hockey, Moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, But overall, here's just my argument. The IOC itself is an incredibly corrupt entity, right? So the Olympics are not chosen based on merit or ideas it's or all potential. Bribes. It's, it's all, all yeah. bribes. Right? Yeah. So that's number one. And bribes and sort of a very Eurocentric perspective. That's number one. Number two, cities don't want it because you know why? It's a fucking disaster when you have the Olympics. Look at Rio in 2016. They spent all this money that didn't have to build all these athletic facilities that are already all rotting away. Um, well, no if you do it smartly, the, the the New York plan was pretty cool, didn't you like? Yeah, that? I mean it was pretty Doctor cool, Ruffs? but but the reality is, like Dan Doctoroff, who was the architect of it, right. his argument, which wasn't wrong, was like, look, the Olympics will give us the political will to build infrastructure and invest in infrastructure that we otherwise wouldn't do. Right. But but that was based on the notion that everyone loves the Olympics so much that they would make any sacrifice. And guess what? They didn't love the Olympics so much because his stadium, which was the centerpiece of it, which was supposed to be on the west side of Manhattan instead of Hudson Yards, got killed by none other than Shelley Silver, uh, <laughs> who was getting paid <laughs> off it's, by it's Jim It's all coming Dolan. around. It's yeah. all coming around. And we didn't get it. And I said to Dan once a couple of years ago, I said, D- best thing that ever happened to you was losing that because look, Hudson Yards is this like incredible facility that is creating billions and billions of dollars in economic development and jobs and everything else. Whereas the Jets were going to be the Jet Stadium. They play eight times a year. I mean, the Jets stink even the eight times, but, but basically it's a defunct piece of property and, and they turned into something great. And he still didn't want to a- admit that. Do you think Hudson Yards is great? I think the economic impact on New York City is far better than a stadium would have been. Yes. 
I just feel like Manhattan. I is don't just, personally right, like going to Hudson Yards. It's just like corporate, like skyscrapers everywhere. Like we took one amazing piece of property and turned it into more skyscrapers. Yeah, but you know what? That creates jobs. That creates tax revenue. That creates opportunity. So, like, no, I, th- I think from a pure city planning standpoint, city governance, you, you couldn't argue that it's not materially better. But, but here's the point. The Olympics no longer are good for the cities that host it. They cost them tremendous amounts of money, and they build lots and lots of facilities that go into disrepair and disuse immediately after the games. So now we have a governing body that can't be trusted at all. We have a value proposition to cities that no longer really makes sense because the Olympics, hosting the Olympics costs tens of billions of dollars, and even a really well-funded place still could use put the money to better use. So I know the World Cup's a little different, but like Qatar is, is hosting the World Cup this November, right, in Doha, and they built air-conditioned outdoor stadiums, right? right. I got to imagine there's some use of the money in Qatar that could help people who need it a lot more than air conditioning and outdoor stadiums, right? So the point is, it is terrible public policy. It is it is chosen terribly, and then people aren't that into it anymore. So I, I, I looked this up. I'm looking at an article in Forbes. So the... 20, 2008 Beijing Olympics had 27.7 million viewers, London 31.1, Tokyo 15.1 million. Now, I know what you're going to say, which is streaming, and we our, our media consumption has changed completely, and everything is different. So, yes, I'm sure that streaming may I like how you're some, doing my job at the same time. I'm like, anticipating your yeah. arguments. Uh, <laughs> streaming has probably, probably some of the gap can be counted to that. But the main thing is people aren't that interested. Hugo, has anyone brought up to you in the last few weeks, like, hey, I'm super psyched for the Olympics? No, no, but it hasn't started yet. But I agree. I, n- Did no you watch the Summer Olympics last year? No. Right. But, but Neither. Uh, well, I think I – maybe I watched some of it. But I didn't I, – I agree no with you. No one that, cares. Yeah. So if, if the public doesn't care and it's bad for the government and for the taxpayers and the way that it's picked is completely corrupt – so but we're going to do all of this to benefit some figure skaters? But, well, Why are we I was, doing this? I was going to say that the the amount of – the number of, like, like elite athletes whose entire, like, careers are focused on making the Olympics. I mean, in, in gymnastics, my, my, my niece is, a, like, a competitive gymnast. And it's crazy. They, it, they structure their whole lives yeah, around – I hear you. And, right. look, and it's amazing. I but, mean, I'm not saying that's a reason to do it. It's just interesting, like, how – how massive a force it is in the world, even with all these things that you're talking well, for about. for the athletes, right. It, it's everything. But, but with that said... But there's a whole structure around the athletes, too. The families, the coaches, yeah. the like, all these, all these sports. Like, but if, the, if the Olympics didn't exist, either there would still would gymnastics be... gymnastics exist? I mean, it's like... You well, know, but if, it, if there's no demand for it, that right. it can't exist outside the Olympics, then it right. shouldn't exist. No, I, I think you're right. You I'm know, just, like, let, by the way, no one's stopping people from playing gymnastics. I don't know if that's even the word you would use here, or doing it. They're just saying, why would we spend tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer money that we can't afford to highlight it? It doesn't make any sense. Um, we're coming up on another transition moment yeah, here. No, this, this is a Spotify one. Oh, no, I wasn't going to talk, talk about, about Spotify. Do. You do? do? You want to talk about Neil Young and Joe Rogan? Yeah. Okay. Well, you brought it up. No, I did bring it up. But we, we, I thought we, it was interesting. Okay. But we did, I just didn't have it on our list here that we, we talked about oh, pre-broadcast. Let's do it. We'll, we'll uh, did you watch point. Joe's like little video? Nope. It was pretty good, actually, I have to say. You know what he's good at? Not seeming pissed off, like he like he does this video and he's like, I still love Neil Young and he's a you know I'm a big fan of his and then he told some actually pretty lame story about that involved Neil Young and him when he was a younger guy, um, but like he was I was like oh, oh the when they met at the car wash, <laughs> the car wash. <laughs> um, so look, your question I'm now playing both roles here. Okay, um, yeah, is, yeah. I'm just gonna go get some. So some Spotify. Meat. So Neil Young asked Spotify to remove his music in protest of. Their commercial deal with Joe Rogan, 
Joe Rogan's a podcaster who I guess you don't is, have to say if, if if they're listening to this podcast, yeah, they know Joe Rogan's anti-vax he's the or king at least of, not not pro-vax, right? Um, yeah, and, I don't think he'd say he's maybe he'd say he's anti-vaxer, but in any case, he's had a couple of guests on who who are considered sort of outside the mainstream on vaccine policy and health. Right. So, so Neil Young said, "Okay, I don't want to be associated with this platform." Fine. I think Joni Mitchell just did the same thing. She did. Yeah. She's still alive. No, she's dead, and she said it while from beyond the grave. Of course, she's alive. I, I'm <laughs> sort of shocked by that. But Joni um, Mitchell's probably. I'm sure she's younger than 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 Neil Young. No. Anyway, here's the point. Which is, to me, th- this is a pretty simple question. Which is, it's it's just like politics. It's a Johnny Mitchell is seventy eight years old. Yeah, close to eighty. A pure cost benefit for Spotify. So I was thinking about this in the context of, of when we legalized Uber. Neil the, Young is seventy six. Anyway, so go ahead. so Joe Rogan in this case is the taxi industry. The politicians are Spotify. In the case of Uber, until something came along to change it. Politicians were always happy to do the bidding of the taxi industry because they gave them money, right? It was that was the logical, easy thing to do. When we were ultimately able to generate millions of people saying, "No, I don't want you to do this," then all of a sudden it became better for the politicians to follow our lead as opposed to taxi's lead, right? Can, so can Neil I, Young, I, can I blow up your metaphor? Yeah. Or do I have to wait? You go ahead. Well, I mean, Neil Young, uh, Joe Rogan is not the taxi uh, like industry. He's he doesn't a, have he doesn't have a monopoly on 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 so, podcasts. Right, he's not even as bad. That so that only helps my argument. Oh, uh, it helps your argument. Yeah, because what I'm saying is Spotify. The only reason they should consider you know acting in some way on what Neil Young and Joni Mitchell want is if if it's not just Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, but if hundred if Taylor Swift and hundreds of other artists right. all said we're off, right. then. The calculus shifts. It's just a pendulum, right? Who has more power and weight? Joe Rogan has infinitely more than Neil Young and Joni Mitchell at this point, but some amount of artists would have more than Joe Rogan. Right. So you're looking at it as sort of a power play only, which is, I mean— It is all it is. Well, I mean, Neil Young didn't do this because there's some better way for him to make money coming out of it. Oh, but hold on. No one talks about Neil Young anymore. Now we are. Um, This was good for him. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So you think he, he made himself relevant after being irrelevant for the last forty years? Oh my God! You, now, the Neil I'm Young, not a Neil Young fan. Yeah, my God! The Neil Young listeners, if there are bring any on, out there, yeah, but they're gonna but, they're gonna or, be or, let me give you angry at you than Joe Rogan because even Joe Rogan says he's a Neil Young fan. Well, I, I will say on this podcast, I am not a Neil Young fan. Wow! Um, oh, or Joni, I am a Neil or Young Joni fan. Mitchell. Although I do like that Joan Didion essay about her. Um, <laughs> you I, like I read that recently when Joan Didion died. I reread it in Slouching Towards Bethlehem. So, um, so you like the essay, not you don't like Joni Mitchell's music. Voice. I'm just not into folk music. Okay, are you? Yeah, some folk music, sure. I, I like both of them. So I don't. Um, but he, like Harper, a uh, long time ago, was a curator at Museum of Modern Art, and the curators went on strike, and the museum was like, "Screw you!" And they weren't strike for like six months, right? And the museum's like, "We don't care. You're you're easily replaceable." And they brought in scab curators and all this scab stuff. Scab curators. That's and funny. And then the um, the union for right. the curators was, which was actually the Teamsters, uh, was able to get like a hundred major, major living artists to all sign a letter that was published in the New York Times saying this has to end. Right. And then MoMA folded because all of a sudden the right. pendulum shifted, the power dynamic shifted. Right. Those artists are part of their constituency, and when a big part of their constituency said no more. They shifted, but ultimately, this is. I just think it's a good. I think the Spotify thing right now is a really good example of how politics works in general and how the world works in general, which is it's purely around incentives. 
So if Bradley Tusk is a, um, let's say you're a, a medium-sized um, heavy metal musician from Long Island, um, and you have you know a couple hundred thousand monthly Spotify listeners, um, are you are you coming out um, in favor of Neil Young because you can get a little um, PR for your band, or you, um, do you well you, do you have care to about weigh the, the cost benefit about losing for yourself, so you, right. you have to deplatform if you're going to do this, right? right. You can't s- complain about it and then not go off Spotify. Right. So the question is. Are, are you better off? So right right now, I use Spotify. I'm so, so, so ingrained in it. If an artist isn't on there, I'm just not going to listen to them, right? Really? Yeah, you don't, you don't I'm not going to go out of my way. To you, don't, like, you don't listen to anybody on YouTube or Bandcamp or really anything don't. like that? No, I don't care enough. So like, so, and I, my tastes are mainstream enough that it's just not really necessary. Right. So point being, that heavy metal band from Long Island would have to make the decision of, um, is it better for me to not be available on Spotify but get some PR or better for me to stay on Spotify. They're making a rational cost-benefit decision, as was Neil Young, as is Joe Rogan, as is Spotify. And if you want to understand these, or if you, basically if you really want to understand politics, it's all about the incentives. The inputs shape the outputs every single time. Um, Gotham Book Prize nominees. Yeah. So, so so they came out last week. How many are there? There's I'm going to... 10 or 11? Is that oh, right? I'm so gonna, this is the them. second year of the... I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, filibuster yeah. while he, he was looking it up. So this is the second year. Uh, our friend Howard Wolfson and I created this um, to award $50,000 every year to the best book set in New York City. And we did this during the pandemic with the notion of, you know, there's kind of two New Yorks, right? There's the New York that you and I live in, the streets, the subways, the schools, the parks, the everyday New York. But there's another New York that exists in books, in movies, in TV shows, in music, that the rest of the entire world knows, right? Right, right? And that New York is equally critical because it's that feeling about New York, that mystique that brings people here. It brings the best and the brightest from all over the world who want to live here, who want to work here, who want to create here. Come here right? and see Broadway shows. Yeah, or, or even just visit. Yeah. So that mystique is really critical to the city's future, to its economy and everything else. And Howard and I thought, look, even if we do something very small that encourages writers to keep writing about New York because there's some money potentially that they could win. Incentives. Let's Incentives. do it, right? Yeah. So the the book called Deacon King Kong was the first winner by James McBride. It won last year. Now, he didn't really need the money because he's won the National Book Award and all that stuff. Um, but um, we announced the nominees uh, last week for this year, and you want to read them off? I'm going to read them off. There are 10 of them. Uh, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess, and Transformation by Tom Dija. And let me just, on that one, okay. th- we did a podcast with we him. We did, yeah, it was good. Uh, and it was good, so you, you can look that up. It, it's about the Koch, uh, Dinkins, Bloomberg, and Giuliani administrations. If you like New York City politics and history, really good book. Yeah. Um, the Other Black Girl by Zakiah Delilah Harris. Yep. Um, Harlem Shuffle by Colson White. And I have to say, that was not one of my choices. And I, Colson White has a great writer. Yeah. I think the intu- intuition is still in my also favorite books. Also a Trinity graduate, along with me and oh, Alvin Bragg. Tough there you go. Um, I couldn't get through it. I thought right. it was boring. Right. Um, Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in it's an American City. It's a tough book, but it's worthwhile. By Andre Elliott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked with Andre at the New York Times. Quite Do you a, like her? Quite an amazing reporter. Um, Let the Record Show, A Political History of Act Up New York, 1987 to 1993 by Sarah Schulman. Yeah, and that's also worthwhile, and I haven't finished it yet, but um, when you look at the most successful examples of political organizing in the last 40, 50 years, the LGBTQ movement has to be right right up there. Yeah. And so their history and what they did, and quite frankly for me, in studying that for for mobile voting, um, I think it's actually pretty important. Astrid Sees All by Natalie Stanford. Cute novel. I liked it. Cute. 
Um, Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. Haven't read it yet. Haven't. Okay. Um, when We Make It by Elizabeth Velazquez. So this is a really interesting book. So it, okay. it's a YA book. It's right. kind of verse. It's not like poetry. It's kind of verse. Um, and three or four different jurors nominated. It was actually the most nominated uh, of all of the books that we have. Um, and so... Has Abby read it? I mean, she's, I don't pat, know, she's probably she past has, YA but, anyway. But yeah, she? but... but I, th- I thought it was really interesting. In some ways, you know, I would be happy to see a YA book win. Um, Ghost of New York by Jim Lewis. Yeah, we've talked about that, I think, before. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. Um, and is it Liberté or Liberty by Caitlin Greenish? Yeah, so I'm about to start that. I've, okay. I've got it sitting on my night table. Um, and, and also, let me just say, because we, we've interacted with some of these people now since we announced the, the, nom- the nominations last week. Um, they all seem to be very, very lovely people. Oh, is that nice? Yeah. Um, people are happy when you nominate them for a prize. All right, um, Bradley. We were supposed to do this at the top of the um, the podcast, but now we're at the bottom of the podcast. We're going to do it anyway. Um, we had a special episode of the podcast come out, which is today, Monday. But when you're listening to this, it'll be at least Tuesday um, on the metaverse on a on a big memo that uh, Tusk Strategies produced um, that's out this week. Um, why don't you give a little pitch to people who haven't read it yet or don't know of it yet of why they who should... Who possibly could have not read the memo by this point? It's true. 6,000 words on regulation of the metaverse? I mean, that's like... I'm sure I, the stock market stopped trading when we put I it I know. Out. Well, I'm reading it again as soon as we're done. With yeah, the, of course. With the, it's with eight, you just can't put here. it down. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he, here's the point. So I've been thinking about uh, over the last couple months now, the metaverse is clearly coming. How would you regulate it? And so... I wanted to try to change the pattern and dynamic of tech regulation, which is the way that it normally works is entrepreneur comes up with an idea, um, they turn it into a product, they launch it, it gains, if either fails, gone, or it gains traction. Once it gains traction and people start using it, then regulators start noticing saying, oh, what should we be doing about this thing? And the problem is by the time you do that, you're so behind the eight ball that either it's something like an Uber or a FanDuel where someone like me stops you because I can just mobilize the customers and, and use that. Or in the world of like Facebook, Instagram, all of that, you know, they, they were way too late to the game on how to regulate social media and it now to, to devastating impact, right? So we know the metaverse is coming. We know what the issues will be because, and that's what the memo does. Is oh, we have some idea. Them all out. Yeah. We least know, we know a lot of them, right? right? So rather than waiting for this to happen, waiting a few more years, seeing all these horrific things happen, and then not being able to do very much about it, what if we did something really radical, which is prepare. <laughs> Get out ahead of it. What if we said, okay, we know taxation, worker classification, consumer protection, national security, protecting kids, all these different things you know, are, are going to clearly be issues that need to be dealt with in the metaverse. What if we put together like this really smart people in that field, right? You could have people in government, academics, people from business, whatever it is, and just start figuring it out. Like, we don't have to have it all resolved today, but it seems like we know this thing is coming. And then Erica, who um, was on the, the podcast Monday, texted me an article that a woman in London went on Facebook's metaverse uh, and was immediately sexually harassed and assaulted. Wow. Now, metaphysically, but nonetheless, still sexually harassed and assaulted. So we know bad shit's going to happen on the metaverse, just like it happens on the internet. The difference is because we've now had the internet for 25 plus years, we've learned a little bit. Right. So perhaps we could take what we've learned and apply it. So do your homework, everybody. Read the memo. So uh, you go to BradleyTusk.com and it'll be on there. Is it? It's up there. Okay, it good. It will be. Um, all right. You're going to sign off, but then we have a little coda coming up. After the, the break, there's going to be a very short 
um, interview with Jack Collins, yeah. who is our editor, our audio editor, also the brother of Megan Collins, um, who is uh, a very important person here at Tusk. Um, and we're going to talk to him about the cruise that he went on with his band because Bradley was interested in that. So that's going to come up in one second. Cool. All right. Well, Hugo, other than that, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, basically for letting me rant and do both of our jobs. Today. Yeah. Very well done, Bradley. Thank you. All right. See you. Okay. Um, so to our listeners, uh, Jack Collins, as Hugo mentioned, is our editor, is Megan's brother. Um, and last week, we had to sort of rearrange the timing of one of our recordings because Jack was going uh, on a cruise. But Jack was going on, as I understand it, a cruise that sort of featured kind of heavy metal-ish bands and fans. And I was so sort of fascinated by that. I just wanted to have you on for a couple of minutes, Jack. And just like, so what was it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty interesting. So, I mean, the band I've been in, we've been a band for about nine years. And I didn't know about this until a couple of years ago. What's the name of the band? Uh, we're called Dead Poet Society. Okay. But yes, uh, I didn't know about it until a couple of years ago. But it's it's a cruise that leaves from Galveston, Texas. And it goes down to Mexico. It's a five-day cruise. And it's nothing but hard rock and metal bands for five days straight. So there's three or four different stages and all day long. The How big is the boat? It's huge. It's a carnival cruise ship. Wow. And everyone there is like just a super hard rock band fan. Yes. So is it like a crazy Bacchanal on the ship? Uh, it's 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 a mix of families and it's, you know, it's, it's okay. It's, it's cool. <laughs> and are the normal like, cruise stuff still like the people lining up for the buffet and all of that like is that still happening also or people are just here like doing lines in the bathroom or whatever no you you it's not like it was in the 80s or the 90s or whatever you want to think it's it's the average age of the person was probably over 40 years old over 45 because that's what's left of hard rock fans these days but uh right. it was a 24-hour buffet and how, how was the food it was okay I wish I yeah. could say it was awesome, but you, you know. How many shows did you play? We only did two shows. We were there for five days. So you basically just enjoyed yourself cruising. Yeah, it was it was a vacation for us pretty much, but you know, you can't really go anywhere. I've never been on a cruise. Did you like it? I liked it. I didn't love it. I was I felt pretty trapped by the end of it. But. So you don't think you'll go on one again? Would you perform on this cruise again? I would perform on the cruise again because- They paid you. Exactly. Right. Uh, but you wouldn't you wouldn't pay to be a guest on this cruise or absolutely cruise not. Matter. Um, how were the shows itself that you played? They were pretty awesome. Surprisingly, they were all well because nobody has anything to do. So whenever there's a band playing, it's packed because got it. So we're, there's some some of the we and would you say it was some of the better shows that you guys have had in the last nine years? Yeah. Well, you know, the past year everything started picking up for us. So yep. most of our shows just keep getting better. Uh, so we're always constantly surprised by that. But yeah, it was. For what you would think, for being on a cruise ship, it was pretty amazing for us. So hard rock cruise turns turns out there's like an audience for anything, huh? Yeah, I, I can't even imagine what other types of music niche cruises are out there. Who who are the would, would the listeners know any of the bands that were performing? Yeah, I think so. There's a heavy metal band called Lamb of God, which if you're a metal fan is. They're probably one of the most successful of all time. Were they the biggest headliner on the ship? Yes, they were. Oh, and there was, uh, I don't know if any of the listeners know a band called Slipknot, but the singer yeah, of Slipknot. Slipknot. Oh, you you know Slipknot, yeah. The singer, Corey Taylor, uh, was asked to perform because every there were so many bands that dropped out at the last second because of COVID. And, and like, were, were people like the guy from Slipknot just like massive celebrities? Like, was he just mobbed on the ship when he would just try to play shuffleboard or whatever? <laughs> 
Well, I'll tell you. So there was a there was a section called Artist Dining where all the bands dined together, and Corey Taylor and his crew sat at the table next to us. And the whole time we're like, "Oh my god, that's Corey Taylor. He's right there." And he had a bodyguard standing next to him. And sure, as Corey Taylor has to, right? Of course, yeah. right? Especially on a heavy metal cruise. Yeah. <laughs> um, so all right. Ha- so two final questions. One. If listeners are like, shit, this is the ultimate vacation for me, how do they find it? Uh, it's called Shiprocked Cruise. It, it happened, I think it's been going on for like five or ten years. All you got to do is look up Shiprocked Cruise, and there's a website for it, and they're going to be booking for next year. It's definitely a unique experience. I can't argue that. And h- how do people f- uh, find your music? How do they find Dead Poets Society? Oh, you could look us up on Spotify, YouTube, whatever you use. We're, we're on all of them. So Yep, there you go. Cool. And let me ask a question. Are you considering leaving Spotify because uh, of Joe Rogan? Uh, we are not because it's kind of the only thing we got. Also, we don't really have a choice. We're, we we work with a record label and they own our rights for streaming. So we, we right. don't get to decide any of that really at this point. Got it. You got to be Neil Young to do that. Yeah, yep. exactly. Cool. All right. Well, Jack, congrats on uh, on the successful performance. All right. Thanks, Bradley. 